Go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter 9. We are going to continue our series. Book of Acts. Well, Church Without Walls is, is where we have been since September. And uh, we have seen the very beginnings of the Christian movement. And it was a movement when Christianity began. It wasn't an institution. It wasn't, you know, an address. Church wasn't a building. Uh, the, the church was a movement of God's, God's people. And, you know, I... I I just want to say this as a reminder because of the climate and culture we live in. At the height of when Christianity was most influential, it was a time when Christians had the least amount of cultural power or military political force. Can I just say that? Is that okay? I just get so riled up when I hear Christians talk about how what's really going to change our country is if we have right elected officials in office. That just drives me up the wall because I want to go, where is that in the Bible? How do you reconcile that with this? How do you reconcile that with the fact that Jesus Christ came to establish the kingdom of God? And here's what he said the kingdom of God is like. Jesus said, I didn't come to be Caesar. If you want a political leader, okay, who would rise to the throne a political office, then go find somebody else. He said, the height of my career, it's not when I got elected to office. The height of my career is when I got crucified on the cross. We serve a suffering Savior. We serve a Savior who says the Christian life is about giving away power rather than getting it. We serve a, we serve a Savior who says that the way that we influence and change our world is not via political. Okay, I'll stop. I can go on and on about this. But just, yeah. Christianity, when it began, was a movement of God's people, a group of uneducated fishermen and farmers who changed their world for Jesus. You know, one of the things we've been doing throughout the sermon series is redefining what a church is. And we've been saying that a church, again, is not a building, not an address. Church is people. Church is redeemed, forgiven people of God who've been called out from the world that is to be separate, distinct. But then you don't just get called out into some Christian ghetto, but Jesus Christ says you've been called out so they'd be called back in. There's a movement back towards the world if you're a Christian, and Jesus Christ says the way that we do that, the way that we influence our culture, the way we influence our society is a couple ways. There's, there's a couple ways. One is we form and we be a countercultural community that the world could look at and say, how, how is it that they live like that together? In regards to money, in regards to sexuality, in regards to race relationships, how is it that they do that? How is it that we live together? It is so foreign. It is so different. It is so counterintuitive from the rest of the society. The way that we live missionally, don't, don't undermine this, is, 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 is by being this incredibly countercultural community. And it's happening in glimpses if you choose to see. Here's how it's happening in our church, and I love it. You know, recently, I, I'm just blown away by radical generosity of God's people in our church. Recently, there's a family in our church who's been unbelievably generous to other people in this church, but they themselves are going through some hardships and couldn't pay their mortgage. So one person in our church, a member who is sort of connected to this family, wasn't a staff, wasn't a leadership team, just sent out an email, just called out some friends in the church and said, hey, this family has meant the world to us. They can't afford their mortgage. What can we do? Within two weeks, the entire mortgage was collected. I mean, it's, you know, see, when that happens, and by the way, can you do that by yourself? When that happens, the world looks at this community, this city, alternate city, and says, people just don't, people don't, people just don't do that. People don't handle money that way, you know? People hoard it. People, but they just radically just generous, sacrificially, yeah. Okay? Is that happening here? Are we doing that? Because the extent to which that's happening here is the extent to which we are truly and genuinely being the church. Another way, though, is that we don't just form a counterculture community and invite the world to watch and listen. We also move out though. The Bible says we move out into the world. We penetrate areas of darkness. We move out into the world and we embrace and heal the broken and the marginalized. We move out into the world and just say, and, and we just don't say, well, as long as our church is a great place. No, we say, how can we make the city of Chicago a great place for everybody? That's our mission. 
So all of you have a mission wherever you're at, in your workplaces, schools, dorms, neighborhoods, cities. You have a mission from God because the mission of God ventures out. Ventures out. Now, all the stuff, and the reason why Acts 9 is critical is because all of this stuff, as I said before, is a pipe dream unless you have experienced radical conversion. Unless there's been a heart transformation by the Spirit of God. All of this stuff. Because the reality is, can anybody admit, I'm not that unselfish on my own. Anybody? I'm not that, you know, caring about the world on my own. I'm not that. I can't do it on my own strength or in my own ability. It requires the Spirit of God to transform this dead heart and make it new. This hardened heart to soften it. And this selfish heart to be sacrificial. It takes the Spirit of God. That's why I say conversion, life transformation is absolutely essential. The people changed the world for Jesus, not just because they joined and signed up to a movement. They changed the world for Jesus because they were converted, transformed, radically renewed. Has that happened to you? Is it happening to you? Is that happening to me? Okay. So as we come today, we are going to pick up Acts chapter 9, verse 10. After the conversion, and I really thought I was going to get through 31 verses this morning. I got through like six. I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I, I said at the end, I'm like, I'm so pathetic. That was my last comment to the people as I came up here. <laughs> I'm so pathetic. I keep... Okay, anyway, pray for me, please. Okay, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 10. So Saul's been converted. Soon to be Paul, and here we go, Acts chapter 10. So in Damascus, remember, Saul went to persecute and to kill Christians. There was a disciple named Ananias. Now, talk about Ananias real quick because uh, the way it happened at the 9 o'clock, we're going to come back to Ananias and sort of end with him. Ananias, an obscure figure in the, in the New Testament. His name appears, by the way, this isn't the Ananias of Acts 5 who dropped dead. You know, I believe in the resurrection, but not like that, okay? So this is not that Ananias. This is another Ananias, and he is an obscure figure in the book of Acts. He only happens, like I said, appears twice. The other time is Acts chapter 22. By the way, you know, we're going to see, I mean, if Ananias was influential to Paul's life, wouldn't you think Paul would throw him a bone and mention him a few more times? Ah, uh-uh. never talks about the guy, you know? His name appears one other time, like I said. But what we know from Ananias, about Ananias is that Ananias... Ananias is used by God to baptize Paul and to teach him foundational spiritual instruction. Ananias, not an apostle, not some leader from Jerusalem church. Ananias, an unknown, and I put this in quotes, lay leader. He's not a pastor, has a job, does go, you know, does, I don't know what he does. He kind of does his thing, but God chooses him, Ananias. And there's a powerful principle here, and hopefully we'll come back to this towards the end. Um, Ananias, verse, verse 10. So the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. I love that. Can I just stop there? I love that. I love that. There's a guy who comes to our church. Guy who comes to our church. He was an alcoholic for 20-some years. He's recently gone through rehab, and he's really just blossoming and growing as a Christian. He comes up and says, can you pray for me every single Sunday? Not a Sunday goes by where he doesn't, right? So he pulls me aside every Sunday. He says, can you pray for me? And he has one request. You know what that one request is? This is so, and I I wonder sometimes whether he does it for himself or he said for me. He says, Pastor Peter, can you pray for me? Can you pray that every day I would get up, all I would want to do is God's will? Alcoholic, 20 some years. He says, can you just pray that? Monday, I want to get up and say, God, all I want to do today is your will. Tuesday, I want to get up and say, God, all I want. I think think he does that for me. Because every time he says it, I start tearing up because I realize that's not me. Is that you? He gets up every day and says, all I want to do today is your will. Help me to do that, God. There's Ananias, but, but, before we give him too much credit, gets a little harder. <laughs> yes, Lord, he answered, verse 11. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street 
and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, I just read that quickly, right? But I think this is how it really went down, okay? Yes, Lord. Here comes God. Says, okay, I want you to go to the house of Judas. You know him? Yeah, I know him. On, 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 on Straight Street. You know where that is? Yep, yep, I, I know where that is. And ask for a man. Okay, I know a difference, man and a woman. Okay, I think I can do that. Okay, from Tar- Tarsus, okay? Okay, and, and his name is Saul. And I think Ananias, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And I think at this point, you, you see Ananias going, and his name is Saul. And I was going, come again. Because <laughs> God, I could have sworn there for a minute you said Saul from Tarsus. I know you got to be mistaken, so come again. No, Saul from, wait, wait, but God, you're, you're talking about the guy who's responsible for the fact that we're all here in the basement. Lights are turned off, doors are locked, and we're hush quiet. That's all. We heard about, have you been reading the newspapers? Have you been watching the news? We heard what he did to Stephen, okay? That Saul of Tarsus, you got to be kidding. No, that Saul of Tarsus. See, the thing is, you, 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 you and I aren't too much unlike uh, uh, Ananias because you got to give Ananias a break because here's the thing. See, two weeks I preached on the Saul's conversion and I'd come up here and say, no one is too lost for God to find, to which you go, amen. No one is too hard-hearted for God to break through, amen. No one is too evil for God to forgive, amen. But the thing is, you walk out of here after that Sunday and you meet and see people every day in your life, in your work, in your school's environment and you say to yourself, what? No. Nah. True? Here's the thing, though. You ready? When we do that, it's not just lack of faith. It's lack of deep belief in the gospel. See, here's the thing. This is why I say we need the city more than the city needs us. You know what you'll find in the city? You'll find in the city people that are spiritually, morally just out there and just lost, right? Here's the thing, though. If you're a Christian and you believe in the gospel of grace, that you are saved by grace and grace alone, right? Nothing that you do. Nothing that you do. Why are you surprised at the fact that God could work miracles in their lives? When it was a miracle work of God that worked in your life. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah? Yeah? So when we look at people and go, God couldn't possibly, you're not just lacking faith. You don't believe that salvation comes by grace and grace alone and not your moral efforts. Let me take this a further. Christians have a hard time meeting non-Christians who are kinder, gentler, deeper, and just better people. Do you know that? Like we get shocked, you know? You meet a Muslim, for example, another faith, and you go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they're so much nicer than me. And we get shocked at that. But my question is, why are you shocked that there are Christian people of other faith, non-Christians, I mean, who are nicer, just better people? Here's the reason why you're shocked. You're shocked because you think salvation comes because you're kind, because you're wise, because you're a good person. You think God chose you because you're good, because you're kind, because you're, you see what I mean? If you deeply believe in the gospel of grace, you shouldn't be shocked that you meet people, non-Christians, Muslims, who are much, much better people than you. Now, we should be kinder. We should be. But the fact that we meet reminds us we are saved by grace and grace alone. You see what I'm saying? That means there are Christians in this room. I mean, you're growing. God is doing a wonderful work in you. But man, you compared to your coworkers, goodness gracious they put you to shame, and that's okay. Do you know why? Because you weren't saved because you're good, kind, wise, deeper. You're saved because God's grace broke into your life. See what I'm saying? Does it make sense? So, so you know, Chris, don't be surprised. Like, you know, thank God for it and, and, and ask yourself, how do I need to continue to grow and mature? But don't be surprised. And when you're surprised, it just shows you believe in your head that you're saved by gospel of grace, but in your heart you don't. You think it's because you're good. You're kind, you're wise, you're deep. Okay? So Ananias is not unlike us. Or I should say we are not unlike Ananias. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, so go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. That is an absolutely astounding statement. I know it's because you and I look sort of from the other side of the, you know, uh, the, the gospel and we know all that Paul already did. But think about it at the moment who Saul is. And God has the audacity to come and say to him, he is my chosen instrument. I know what he was. I know what he did. But I want you to take down banner. T- 
take down that banner, erect this banner over him. He is now my chosen. Is this good news to anybody? Let me ask you something. What banner hangs over your head that you need to hear from God today? You need to take that down. You are not that person anymore. You are not who your past says you are. You are who Christ past says you are. You are not who your father said you are or your mom said you were. You are who your heavenly father says you are. Amen? Let me take it. You are not even who you think you are. <laughs> you're sitting there going, I am this. No, you're not. You are who God, your heavenly father, your savior, your redeemer says you are. What banner hangs over your life that God would say, take down that banner. You are a chosen instrument of mine. Now get to work for my kingdom. Is that good news? That's amazing news. There's not a single person in here. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you have done. Radical nature of the gospel. I don't care how close you've been to the gates of hell. When God grabs a hold of you, you can become his chosen instrument. Now, as I thought about this, I think Paul was used powerfully by God. And we know that he's probably the greatest Christian leader missionary ever lived. He was that because God chose him. There was divine appointment and God grabbed the hold of him, so on and so forth. But I think there's another factor that we tend to sort of obscure or maybe gloss over that I want to kind of bring home today. And again, it has something to do with the gospel. Is it okay if I talk about the gospel again? Okay, here it is. You ready? It is in my personal experience and the experience of others as I've talked to people that it's oftentimes people who have screwed up the biggest, people who have screwed up the biggest that winds up being just unbelievably powerful instruments for God's kingdom. Have you noticed that? There are people who are just absolute mess of their lives, who were one time hostile, just hostile towards God and Christianity. People who just, that oftentimes is those people when God gets a hold of them that are used more powerfully, if you will, than others maybe who haven't. And, and this is the reason why. And here's sort of the, this, this is the kind of ironic thing about the gospel. You ready? Here it is. Here, let me put it this way. The reason why I think that happens is because when you take a person whose screw up is the biggest Okay? It's oftentimes when God gets a hold of them, their repentance is the deepest. And it's oftentimes because their repentance is the deepest, their grasp of the gospel of grace. Gospel of grace. He did that for me. It's more profound. And as a result, they become perhaps great leaders for the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Let me say that once more. Let me say that once more. It's people whose screw up is the biggest. As a result, oftentimes, because you've screwed up, because you've made a mess of things, because you've done some things, you're like, ah, because you screwed up, your, your, your repentance when God to get a hold of you, your repentance is the deepest. And the result of your repentance being deep, your grasp of the gospel, your grasp of the gospel is the greatest. And that's what makes you the most qualified leader for the gospel movement of Jesus. Does that make sense? This is revolutionary if you think about it, okay? It's revolutionary if you think about it because here's the thing. Here's what religion says. Here's the way that our world perspective, religion works, okay? Religion says this. Religion says you are saved when you're strong. You are saved to the degree that you are strong. That is, you are saved to the degree that you're moral, to the degree that you're a good person. You are saved to the degree that you get the rules right, you know? And so if that's your approach, you know, you're saved according to how good you are, degree. if that's your approach, here's what happens. When failure comes, you are devastated. You're not just uh, disappointed. When, fail, when you fail as a religious person, it crushes you. You know why? Because your entire identity, your entire being is built upon, I am good, I'm moral, I did the right thing. And you have just done the thing that has just crushed the foundation of your life. So if a religious person not only is failure traumatic, but repentance is episodic. You hate admitting that you've failed. This is how you know you're a very religious person. You ready? You hate admitting that you've failed, that you've done wrong. You will blame anybody and everybody. It's not just sin nature in us that wants to do that. When you're religious, you will do anything and everything to say, it's my fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my mom's fault. It's a family. If you knew what I grew up with. Why? Because in religion, the way the word works, admitting failure, admitting weakness, admitting that you've messed up is absolutely devastating to you so you'll never do it what does the gospel do 
And this is why the power of God and the power of grace comes into somebody's life when they embrace the gospel. The gospel is exactly the opposite. The gospel says salvation doesn't come to strong. Salvation doesn't come to those who are good. Salvation doesn't come to those who fix. Salvation comes to those who can say, God, I don't have what it takes. God, I am a miserable failure morally. God, I am a wretched sinner. God, I don't have what it takes on my own. And what that does in the gospel is that it unlocks and unleashes the power of God's power and his grace to come flooding into that person's life. So if you're a gospel-believing person, not only are you powerful, used by God, you have no problems admitting, yep, I've, I've, I've messed up, I, I've failed. Yep, yep, those are areas in my life I need to work on. Yep, yep, you got me there. Uh, no defense. Uh. When you are a gospel-believing person, Failure and repentance will drive you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. And the result is a resurrection. What do I mean? Gospel-believing person, when you fail, you don't get guilty, condemned. When you fail and you go before God and you repent, you all of a sudden begin to see <gasps> the costliness of his grace <gasps> and the enormity of his love. He who screw up is the biggest. As a result, their repentance will be the deepest. As a result, their embrace of the gospel will be the greatest. As a result, they will be the most qualified leader for the gospel movement of Jesus. Does that make sense? Is that good news? I think part of the reason why, my little opinion, Paul was so powerful, used by God, and he did what he did, and we know this, not just guessing why he's looking at the letters, wasn't just because God said he is a chosen instrument of mine, because the reality is, in some ways, God could say that about all of us, but the degree to which you have repented of religion, the degree to which you have died to this earning God's approval, the degree to which you have died to that, because you've come to realize salvation is by grace. I am no better God than anybody else staggering out there. The degree to which you embrace that and realize that it is because God came through with this grace, that will make you a powerful leader for the gospel movement of Jesus. Amen? And if you're somebody who struggles with this, Holy Spirit of God, his ministry is to remind us of this. His ministry is to remind us of this. This is why the gospel says that the biggest screw-ups often become the best repenters, and as a result, best leaders, best husbands, best moms, best dads, best parents, best counselors, and everything else. Come on, where are you today? Hmm? Are you somebody who looks at the cross of Christ and just, oh my gosh, he did that for me, for me? Or are you walking around going, God could never save them? I mean, after all, I can't believe they're kind people, wise people that are not. I mean, I can go list example after example. Where are you today? Gospel of grace as I've broken through. Let's keep going. Verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Guys, I'm sorry. But we're going to park it right there for a little bit. Is that Okay. Can you just stare at that verse for a little bit? We went to a kind of a very, very tough place this morning. I don't know how people responded. I had one person actually come up and say, you weren't as exuberant as, as, you know, as loud. And I said, well, I was talking about suffering. I want to be truthful, but I want to be pastorally sensitive because I realize that there's some of you who are going through some tough things. Let me say a statement that's so obvious, but you and I just don't want to hear it. You ready? Suffering is an inevitable part of being a Christian. And the round of choruses say, whatever, right? Yeah. Can I say that? Let me take it a little further. The biblical call for us with suffering is not that we should deny it, repress it, run from it, avoid it. But, but I know this is hard. Listen. We need to embrace it. We need to embrace it. You guys, how do we get here? How do we get to a place where 
The Bible, you cannot read the Bible without coming to grips with the fact that suffering is an inevitable, invaluable part of being a Christian. How do we get to this place where as soon as I mentioned that, half of you are tempted to tune out right now, a quarter of you are angry at me, and the other 25% are just kind of, oh, that's interesting. How do we get to this place in American Christianity where we mentioned the word suffering? People go, oh. And then we mentioned the word health, wealth, prosperity. Yeah! How do we get to this place? Can I just ask, how did we get to this place? We're going to spend the next few minutes. We're not, we're not the whole thing. A few minutes. Just, can we, is it okay if we park here for a little bit? Is that okay? Is it okay? Westernized Americans, is that okay? <laughs> and I include myself. Is that okay? Comfort-seeking, inconvenience-denying, you know, pleasure. Is it okay? Okay, Scripture. Scripture. Let's go to Scripture first, okay? Listen to Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Put some scripture passage up there. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. What do you think he was talking about? Luke chapter 14, verse 27. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If you're not a Christian today, I am glad to be used of God to say this to you today. You ready? If you want to become a Christian, you're going to suffer. This is the reason why we don't have a lot of conversions in our church, you know. The pastor gets up there and says dumb things like that. You know what I mean? Dumb, but biblical. Amen? (laughs) What do you think Jesus is talking about? This is a culture in which when people thought of the cross, they thought two things, suffering and death. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? You want to be a Christian? Suffering and death. Every single one of us has a cross to bear. And please, can I just say this? Oh my gosh, I mean, we've, we've so far strayed from this. I said this morning, when we think of my cross to bear, somebody says, I have a huge cross to bear. What is it? I got to commute like 40 minutes to work. I have a cross to bear. My cross. What's your cross? It's my roommate. I just, really? Actually, he said the same thing about you two days ago. <laughs> Somebody said this morning, you know, Pastor Peter, it's interesting because you get out of America and people have a whole new definition of suffering than we do in here. And I'll get to, you know, I'll get, I'll, I'll get to the, the, this whole thing, problem in a moment. Okay, let's go on. Paul. Apostle Paul, he's describing the spirit-filled life. How many of y'all want to be filled with the spirit of God? (laughs) You're going, I know where you're going with this. I don't want to be filled with the spirit of God, right? I've been paying attention this morning, finally. No, spirit of God. Let me tell you what Paul says, and we'll come back to this section. Romans 5, 3. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. How many of you guys wish you were men and women of character? And hope does, and, and, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Here's a summary of Paul's teaching, summary of everything that he taught about and during the first lap of his missionary journey in Acts 14. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. You're going, okay, how did they strengthen them? How did they encourage them? <laughs> We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. One more, okay? Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, for it has been granted to you. You know what he's saying? He's saying suffering, it's a gift. On behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. I did a brief Bible study of everything that's related to suffering and why God enables and allows suffering to happen in our lives. And here's just a small list of things that happens when we suffer. You ready? Look at this. Developing humility, helping sort out values and priorities in our lives, being taught the value of submission and surrender to God, learning obedience to God's word, learning patient endurance, developing character, producing hope, 
learning to depend on the resources Christ supplies, experiencing God's enabling grace, growth in holiness, developing a strong faith, and learning the truth that if we have God, we have all that is necessary for full maturity. How many of y'all want that? How many are like, I want to be about that. I want to be about those things. Yes? Anybody? You know what Jesus says? The only way that that happens, the only way that that happens is through what? Say it with me. Okay, so let's go there this morning. Why do we struggle with this? Why do we despise it? Why do we not like, why do we just go, oh, suffering? Why? There's a number of reasons. Let me just talk about one, and then we'll talk about what suffering does to us in our Christian lives. The reality is you and I live and breathe in a culture that tells us to avoid suffering any way possible. There's the air mattress, you know. Makes you feel like you're floating on air. Where is it? I said this morning, they, they, they sell chairs now. And you know what they advertise for the chairs? You don't even feel like you're sitting down. So I'm going, if I'm sitting, I want to feel like I'm sitting down. <laughs> we live and breathe in a culture. I'm sorry, but you're laughing because it's true, right? We live and breathe in a culture where it shouts at us anything com- uncomfortable, anything a little hard, anything a little, you know, dip back. Do whatever you can to avoid it. So here's what this country has also done. We have developed multi-billion dollar industries, alcohol, drugs, toys, trinkets, travel. Do whatever you can to master the art of avoiding suffering because God knows who wants to suffer. Who wants pain? The only problem, by the way, with travel toys and all that is eventually when the trip ends, guess where you come back to? Suffering. Drugs? Talk to somebody who's been addicted. The high comes down, you come back to reality and suffering. And the list goes on. Furthermore, obvious, and it's compounding the problem is the fact that we're also addicted to pleasure. We're addicted to, we're addicted to pleasure. We're addicted to pleasure. We're addicted to things in our culture that says convenience and comfort are highest values. Do you know what it's done? Can I just tell you something? The reason why this is hard to preach is because as Christians, here's what, here's what I've done. I don't think about you. Here's what I've done. Because I so hate this suffering, hardships, that sometimes I would rather disobey God and avoid suffering than obey God and go through suffering. Anybody else relate? I would rather sometimes go, God, I know that's the right thing to do. I know I ought to do that. But I know what happens when I do that. I don't like the way that feels. So I choose disobedience. Okay, y'all just are hanging in there. Okay, hanging in there with me. Okay, how do we deal with this biblically? Let me just mention, I could only think of like five or six, but I only have time to mention two or three. Two or three. Two or three things that the Bible says about suffering. Okay, here it is. Number one, suffering enables us to know Christ more. Suffering enables us to know Christ more. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Can I just ask a question this way? How many of you guys want to know Christ more? I don't think you're serious. Do you know why? You know what the Bible says? Knowing Christ more, inseparably linked to suffering. You know that whole thing, hey, we want to know not just about God, but we want to know God, you know, and we talk about that in the realm of, you know, like, like information, you know. You know, the reality is, though, check this out. Jesus Christ says the difference between knowing about God and knowing God is suffering. I read a book in college that sort of rocked my world, and I, I'll get to kind of this. John Piper Regardless of what you think about him, he wrote a book that was really influential for me in college where he talked about Christian hedonism. And here's what he says, essentially. The argument in that book is this. He says, as creatures, as people, the problem is not that we desire pleasure, but the problem is that we don't desire pleasure enough. He was riffing off of C.S. Lewis who said, here's the thing. We choose games in mud pies or mud puddles when what's waiting us by the Heavenly Father is a vacation at the best resort in the world. 
And the reason why he says it is because we are so willing and so quickly to settle for temporary, meaningless pleasures here and now. What awaits us is deep, lasting joy, lasting pleasure. And where does that deep, lasting joy, pleasure come from? Well, Piper makes this argument. God created pleasure. He knows pleasure. And he says that pleasure comes from, listen, knowing him intimately. This is what he says in John, uh, this is what God's word says in Psalm 16:11. It says, you have known to me the path of life. You've, you've, you've shown me, God, how to really live, not just exist, not just survive, but live, live, life abundant. And he says, you will fill me with joy in your presence, God, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He's saying, literally, that it is when we know God, when we're in intimate communion with God, relationship with God, that pathways open for us to experience joy, true joy, the kind of joy that our souls were created for, our souls were longing for. And so here's the thing that I want you to get this morning, Christian, because we've been filled with lies. Our pursuit of Christ, our pursuit of knowing Christ, our knowledge of Christ, pursuit of wanting him and him only is not incompatible with you experiencing joy. Does that make sense? Our pursuit of Christ, our knowledge of Christ, our wanting to know him because we think that life equals boredom, equals meh. Jesus Christ, the Bible has audacity to say, no, it is in pursuit of Christ, in pursuit of knowledge of him, in pursuit of intimacy with him. It's not incompatible with life of joy and pleasure, but it is the pathway and the route to joy and pleasure. Amen? Do you believe that? So here's the thing. Here's the thing. And we don't believe it. We don't believe it. So here's the reason why we struggle with this. So the Bible says in Philippians 3.10, here's what Paul is saying. He says, when you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, a union happens with you in Christ. A union happens with you in Christ. Get up here so I can show you. A union happens with Christ. With and in Christ, the Bible says, you are in Christ when you become converted. Now here's the thing. He says that union entails intimacy. That union entails entails fellowship. That union entails entails knowledge and communion. He says in Philippians 3.10, in suffering, that union gets deeper, stronger, richer, more powerful. You say, why is that? Because I as a 53 and everywhere else in Scripture says, Jesus is a, what? Suffering Savior. And how in the world would you get to know a suffering Savior without suffering? The real question that's posed before us is not, do you want to suffer, do you not? The real question is, how badly do you want to know Jesus? How badly do you want to know Jesus? And the truth of the matter is, there's a majority of us who says, if that's what it means to know him, no thank you. Is this hard? Is this hard? Can I put it this way? So let me tie it to all this, you know. But speak to me about joy and pleasure because I like that much better. Okay. So joy and pleasure. Let me put it this way. How much joy do you want to experience? How much joy do you want to experience? Because here's the question. The Bible says that it is in union with Christ and death to Christ through suffering that not only do we get to know him more, but we become more like him. We become more like Jesus. We are conformed to the likeness of his image in suffering because he's a suffering savior. And the truth of the matter is that life and pleasure, joy and pleasure in life doesn't come from a certain set of circumstances. Joy and pleasure in life when you're a certain kind of person. Not from a certain set of circumstances. Do you want to be the kind of person that regardless of what the world says, regardless of what happens, remains strong, steadfast, in joy, in deep abiding joy, even if there's storms raging about you? Or do you want to be the kind of person, as James says, is tossed back and forth because circumstances dictate whether I'm happy, whether I'm not, whether there's joy, whether there's not. Who do you want to be? 
I told you this wasn't going to be fun. But it's the truth. Joy and pleasure does not come from a set of circumstances. It comes from what kind of a person you are. C.S. Lewis, Problem of Pain. Let me just put up his quote and then move on here. When we want to be something other than the thing that God wants us to be, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. Whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. Once more, we're embarrassed by the intolerable compliment, by too much love, not too little. This is so counterintuitive, isn't it? And yet it's the way of the kingdom. Uh, secondly, secondly, we're moving on. God uses suffering to advance the gospel. Uh, after this first service, I was walking out, talking to a couple person. I pulled actually one mom in our church over who has gone through, humanly speaking, more suffering than anybody else I know, personally. I asked her, I said, how did the first message resonate with you? And she said, oh, it resonated with me, all right. And she said this, though. She said, can you remind the second service, though? That another way that suffering comes, and this is what I talked about, another way that suffering comes is when you love Jesus and as a result, you live out the mission of God. Here's what she said. She said, suffering comes invariably, she said this, when I go out and give of my time, energy, and effort to the single moms in our church. She said, Peter, that, that takes a lot out of me. It, 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 it's, it's costly. I love them and I do it gladly, but it's hard. See, the reality is when you follow the mission of God to advance the gospel, you will inevitably invite suffering into your life. What do I mean? For some of you, it's because you're being a witness for Jesus that you are suffering, put that in quotes, in workplace and being persecuted. For some of you, it's because you're willing to speak the truth and love to advance the gospel to other Christian brothers and sisters that you're going through. Some of you, it's because you've entrusted yourself to that person that when that person betrayed you, it's enormously painful right now. I could go list a number of things, but the reality is that living for Jesus, living missionally, Paul, he didn't have to preach the gospel. Another young lady came up to me and said, Pastor Peter, it's amazing to me that when I look at all the suffering and persecution that people experience, it was directly related to the fact that they were living out the mission of God. I said, yes. So the reality is when we live out the mission of God, we will. And here's the question. The problem is we could avoid all of that. We could avoid all of that. We could avoid. You don't have to care for that single mom. You don't have to. And not be tired and worn out from caring. You don't have to inconvenience yourself by scheduling your schedule in such a way that you serve at the warming center with homeless men and women. You don't have to. You don't have to care for that small group member who lost their job and they're having a mental emotional breakdown. And the only person they reach out to is you. And you're on the phone with that person day in and day out. You don't have to experience the disappointment of putting your hopes on somebody, believing that they could do better, only for them to relapse. You don't have to experience any of those things. The question, though, is this, though. Is that the way of the cross? Is it the way of the cross to pursue things and to follow things and to want things? Why is it that us Christians always pursue the least path, of, path of least resistance? Why are we always pursuing things that are convenient? Why are we always pursuing things that are comfortable and easy? How do you reconcile that with the fact that Jesus, if you're going to be my follower, you have to carry a cross? <laughs> Man, it's hard preaching about this in North America. I tell you what. This is hard preaching this North American context. How do we reconcile a life that says, I don't want to count the cost. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to be inconvenient. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to experience any hardship. I don't want to experience any suffering. With the way of the cross. Jesus Christ said something profound. He said, unless a seed dies, unless a seed dies, that seed won't be able to bear further fruit. And he's reminding us that ultimately following the cross will mean death to self, which means other people come before you in every way. Nice 
<laughs> Brian says, can I ask a question? Go ahead, Brian. I'm not guaranteeing I'll answer it because of time, but go ahead. Yes. No. No. Way to know God more is in intimacy with him. Intimacy with him. And intimacy with him will never come without suffering. Because he is a suffering savior. Did you do that really to clarify yourself or did you do that so that other people could hear it one more time? Okay. Thanks. I didn't ask him to ask that. Y'all just need to know. Brian, right around 10, 15, 11, 15, you know, you need to ask that just to make sure, you know, they all get it. Okay. <laughs> one last thing, guys, and then we'll end it. Suffering. Can you hang in there? Is it okay? Is it okay? Is this hard? Nobody's really walked out yet. Nine o'clock or eleven o'clock, so maybe it's good news. Maybe you don't want to be like disrespectful, you know. You don't have to not be disrespectful. If this you don't like this, you could walk out. This doesn't offend me. Last way, suffering enables us to experience the fullness of the spirit. Suffering experience the fullness of the spirit. Let me, um, um, I, I shared nine o'clock service. I, I don't share this story often because, you know, unless it's contextually sort of relevant, I don't share it. Uh, some of you guys know I had malaria when I was 19 years old, 19 years old. I was on a mission trip to Africa and contracted malaria. There's four strains of malaria, four kinds, medical school students, you're sitting there going, big smile on your face. Um, I contracted the worst kind, which has 50% fatality rate, but if you survive, you're okay for the rest of your life, whereas the other three are not as severe, but you have to take medication for the rest of your life. So I got the one where 50% of the people die, okay, in Africa. For two weeks I spent, two weeks I spent my time in intensive care unit, bedridden in New York. I don't exaggerate when I tell you that those two weeks were the most painful, physically, emotionally, every way, most painful time of my entire life. It's also not encouraging when, you know, these bright-eyed residents and med school students walk in and go, oh my gosh, you're supposed to be dead. Like, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. It's very encouraging. Like, get the heck out of the room, you know, useless med students. Anyway, um, because, you know, they don't do anything. My wife's a physician. I know what med students do. You know, they just go out there and act like, you know, what you're doing. But anyway, I've just offended large groups of people in our church this morning. Anyway, God loves you, though, okay? So, <laughs> so I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there. And, and here's the thing. Uh, next to my bedpost, and I didn't share in depth, next to my bedpost was a journal, a journal that I had written, used throughout my trip. And the first page of that journal I wrote the night before I left for Africa, and here's what I said in that journal. I said, God, I have simple prayer request, two things. One, I think you're calling me into full-time ministry, pastorate. Will you confirm that? Secondly, God, break me. I was cocky. 18 years old. I don't know what the heck I was asking. You know what I'm saying? It's like, brokenness, boy, that seems so holy and spiritual. You know, God, break me. You know, that type of thing. I wrote, I'm laying in the hospital bed, and I heard the voice of God as clearly as I've ever, ever, ever heard. And it wasn't audible. Oh, Peter, I didn't hear God that way. I heard him in my heart. And God simply came and said, your prayers have been answered. Now, I know with some of you guys that are going through many painful things, that just gets you angry and that just gets you up. That's the thing. See, mean God, evil God. Let me tell you for me what I experienced. Because I will never, I will never forget the lesson that I learned about brokenness and so on and so forth and fullness of the Spirit. I realized, I realized, you guys, that being filled with the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit of God, living a life in fullness of the Holy Spirit of God can only come when you reach a point of utter and total dependence on him. I can't say it any other way. The fullness and the spirit of God working powerfully in our lives can only come when we reach a point of 
utter and total dependence where we can cry out honestly and genuinely with our souls, with our hearts, God, you are all that I have and you are all that I need. And I began to realize this lesson, powerful lesson I've learned over again. The reason why we don't experience more of the fullness of the Spirit of God, more powerful reality of the Spirit of God is because we are not dependent. Now, watch this. Why are we not dependent? Because many of us are incredibly good at being self-dependent. Anybody? Self-reliant. Why are we self-reliant and self-dependent? It's because we haven't learned brokenness. Why haven't we learned brokenness? I'd rather choose disobedience than be broken. I'd rather choose convenience than the cross. Do you realize that Jesus didn't come to make your life easy, but to make you great? Do you realize that Jesus Christ didn't come to make a way out, but to make a way through? Do you realize that Jesus Christ didn't come to whisk you and deliver you every time you had a hard time or suffering, but so that you might be conformed, formed? So that you would be an unshakable person. This quote by Larry Crabb has been a wonderful, wonderful blessing and encouragement for me. Brokenness is realizing that he is all that we have. Hope is realizing that he is all that we need. Joy is realizing he's all that we want. I can honestly tell you, and I I share this with anybody that will ask, Never since, never before, that two weeks have I learned as much about myself and about God in some 20 years of being a follower of Jesus. If you knew that you couldn't be great without suffering, is it still worth it? If you knew that you couldn't know him in a deep, rich, powerful way without suffering, would you still want to know him? If you couldn't experience ultimate joy in life until you realize that everything and anything you're building your life on here on earth is all just sand, would you still want? Oh, sorry. One very important note. Word of note for you fixers. Y'all know who I'm talking about. I'm talking to you. Mom, dad, somebody. You're one of those people, when you see people going through stuff, you want to fix it. You know what I'm talking about? You want to step in and you go, you want to deliver, you want to save, you want to protect. Let me tell you something right now. Mom, dad, listen. Parents, friends, listen. That may be God's will, but most likely it may not be God's will that you be the Savior, the Messiah, the one to deliver them from, God forbid, any kind of pain and suffering. I think sometimes we do that because we don't want to go through it. You know what I'm talking about? So here's my word for you. If you are somebody that likes to jump in and, you know, so that somebody doesn't have to go through the pain, suffering, so on and so forth, my problem is I'm like way over on the other end. You know, I'm like, let them go through it. Do you not care? Ah, really, let them go, you know. But if you are one of those people on the other side and you want to, here's the thing I want to say to you. Absolutely pray for them. Absolutely stand by their side. Absolutely be their brother or sister. Absolutely do that. But don't you dare play God and feel like you need to do what you need to do so that They could be spared or saved from that because it may be God's will that they be allowed to go through it. Hmm? So if you're somebody sitting here this morning and saying, I need to go, you need to chill out, take a step back, say, God, I will pray, I will stand by their side. But at some point, gotta let go.
Okay, the last thing I want to encourage you with, Ananias, okay? I want to encourage you before you leave here today, okay? <laughs> and then we're going to get out of here. I told you I was only going to get to like six verses. I am so pathetic. Okay, anyway. I told you I was going to say that. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and he entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, and that's just, that's another whole sermon of itself I was going to talk about today. Brother Saul, he calls an enemy of Christ, a former enemy of Christ. He calls somebody who has persecuted his brothers, killed his friends, brother. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Uni, come on up because I just want to end here. I want to end with an encouragement. Is it okay if I encourage you guys? Is it okay? Okay. After all that sermon on suffering and stuff like that, you'll sit down and go, oh my gosh. I want, I want to end with this, and this wasn't something I was planning to do, but it was sort of like in my prayer meditation in Florida, where I was on vacation, by the way. <sighs> you know, I mean, let me tell you what, I, let me tell you how it happened. Okay? Let me tell you how it happened, okay? Because, I, you know, when I'm on vacation, it's hard to turn it like off, right? When I'm on vacation, like thoughts about ministry, all that, and I, I'm pretty good at just kind of blocking it out, right? But this one thought just kept coming and coming. I was like, no, no, no. And I finally was like, okay, fine, because it was God's spirit. Holy Spirit came in and said, you need to encourage your church. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> I'm talking about suffering. <laughs> they need to walk out and go, suffering. You know, they don't need to walk out here and encourage. So, it, it, just like for three days, I was like, fine. So I looked back and I looked at it in the Ananias again, you know? And here's the thing. You guys got to know me. You know, I'm not one of those people. I don't preach this way. I don't lift up characters in the Bible and go, be like him. The only person I do that is Jesus, right? I lift up Jesus and go, be like him. So I'm not asking you to be Ananias, but I just want to encourage you. Here's what I mean. Ananias, as I said before, only appears twice. It's thinking Paul doesn't even give him, you know, any credit, right? He doesn't mention him in any of his epistles. But here's the thing that Ananias did that's powerful for me in what God spoke. The only thing that Ananias did is he simply obeyed and was faithful. That's it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like digging, I'm looking, I'm, there's got to be better inside, you know, God. What powerful thing. No, no, he simply, God came and said, Ananias, do this. And he said, okay, Lord, I'm going to be faithful. That's all he did. Now, why the Spirit of God just comes to say, oh, here's the reason why. There are men and women in our church. By the way, who do you think knew about what Ananias did outside of Paul? Maybe humble people in Damascus, who knew Ananias. I don't want to belabor the point. Here's the point. Nine o'clock, there are men and women who serve downstairs in children's ministry that advance the kingdom of God, or Ananias, if you will, to this church, that never, rarely get credit, rarely seen. And I want to thank them today. Is that okay? I want to thank them today because they're advancing the mission of God in our church. I want to thank, there's like two, three people that have emailed me because they're caring for their community group members, you know, and the community group member, that person they're caring for is somebody who's going through a lot and nobody else in the community group knows about it except that person because that person has reached out, you know, and that person has cared for that person for like six, eight months and nobody else knows and they're just faithful, just being faithful, obedient. Nobody knows, nobody knows, maybe neat because they emailed me. They're being Ananias to their community group and saying, God, without recognition, without commendation, without any notice here, I just want to be faithful. Do you know that there are men and women who wake up at the crack of dawn at 5.30, 6 o'clock sometimes and bike to this church so that you guys can, I can walk in and just worship on Sundays? And you know what? Their names rarely get recognized and you don't even know their faces. But they enable the mission of God to continue through this church. The reason why this was hard for me is because I'm a lot like you. We mistake giftedness with character. We look at gifted people and we go, oh, they must love Jesus. They must be godly. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that giftedness is the same thing with character. And you know what I'm beginning to realize? What's more important than giftedness is faithfulness. Simply a heart that says, God, here am I. Will you use me? I'd go into battle with them any day. So, you know, here's the thing. Before we, you know, Ananias and came back, I want to just take a pause, you know, and I want to lift him and go, be like Ananias. No, no, no. I think you're already hearing what I'm saying. I want to thank the Ananias in our church and simply remind all of us, for those of you that says, I don't have enormous gifts. I'm not like Saul. I'm not like Paul. I'm not called to the mission of God. Da, 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 da. I want to remind you of a quote, actually, that I heard that's captured my heart about faithfulness. And here it is, the last quote I'll leave. Okay? 
Last quote, faithfulness. Keep going. The last quote is faithfulness. I don't pray for success. I pray for faithfulness. Can you say that with me? Ready? I don't pray for success. I pray for faith. One more time. Ready? I don't pray for success. I pray for faithfulness. Do you know who said that? Some of you might know. Tiny little woman named Mother Teresa who gave her entire life to the most marginalized people in India. I don't know about you, but I think she made a small dent by her faithfulness in the kingdom of God. Just a small one. Just a small one. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we are thankful. I am thankful for the Ananiases in our church. I am thankful, God, for men and women in our church who serve so faithfully. I am thankful for men and women in our church who've simply responded with a yes, Lord. I don't have much to offer. don't have much to give. All I've got to offer God is simply my hands, my, 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 my feet, maybe my mouth for you to use and do what you will. That's all. God, I thank you for these men and women who responded to the call by saying yes. And as a result, our church is what it is. As a result, lives are being transformed and changed. As a result. And you guys, um, we did this this morning, and then I want to do this with your heads bowed and eyes closed. I, I, this morning, I asked... Because I want to be pastorally sensitive. I ask those folks in our church right now who are just going through some enormously difficult things, whether it be financially or in their marriage or relationships, community, finances, in their jobs, in their work, or even in ministry, or health-wise. There are many women in our church who are going through what every single one of us who live on earth will go through, which is suffering. And we need to be the church. We need to be the church. We can't stand by and watch. We can't be ignorant and not know. We, we need to be the church. And, and being the church means that we come around them. We pray with them. We pray for them. We walk this journey with them. And we remind them by our physical, tangible presence that they do not walk alone. They do not walk alone. So this morning, the way I want to end this service is to ask that if you are going through hard, difficult times of hardship and suffering and trials, that you would stand simply where you're at and we want to come around you and pray for you and pray with you. That you would stand. So I want to give a moment to do that. A moment to do that. Just throughout the sanctuary, wherever you are, wherever you are, don't be embarrassed. Don't be shy. Don't Just stand from where you're at, okay? Stand from where you're at. Yep, keep going, keep going. Just stand from where you're at. Stand from where you're at and saying, I just need some prayer right now. I would appreciate it. Stand from where you're at. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait a few more seconds. Anybody? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay, now what I need you to do is everybody, I want you to open your eyes. I want you to look up and I want you to see who's standing beside you, who's standing around you. And I need you to get up if you're around them, if you're near them. And I need you to go around them. I need you to put your hands on them. I need to put your arm around their shoulder. I need you to hold their hands. I need you to do whatever you can to be physically, tangibly connected to them saying, so I pray for you. I give you a few, just a moment to do this. Give you just a moment to do this. You pray for that brother. Pray for that sister. Pray for that friend. And pray, pray not that they would be delivered from their, their, their situation, circumstances, that God would, you know, bring answers. Of. No, you pray for what you biblically heard today. You pray for strength. You pray for courage. You pray for boldness. You pray for faith. You pray for deeper knowledge of God. You pray for those things for them. And you bless them with those prayers. Let's pray for them. Hallelujah, Father. Hallelujah, Father, we pray. Lift you up, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord God.
Lift up that person. You may not even know their name. That's okay. Just lift them up. Lift them up to the Lord. Raise your voices. Lift up your voices and pray for them. We lift by Jesus. Father, these are your people, these are your children, these are your men and women, Lord God. Be with them. Be with them, Lord Jesus. Be with them, Lord Jesus. Oh, Spirit of God, 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 oh, Spirit of God. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. Why would you do that, Lord God? Why would you do that, Lord God? Why would you do that, Lord Jesus? Oh, Spirit, oh, Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Why would you do that, Lord Jesus? Holy Spirit of God. need you, need you, need you. Oh, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, we come around and we, we want to be the church, God. We want to be the church. Father, we come around, our brothers and our sisters, we come around, men and women in this church, God, who are going through hardships and suffering and, and difficulties and face enormous challenges. Father, I pray and ask, Lord God, that you would encourage them today and remind them that they do not walk alone. They do not journey alone. They do not, do not do this on their own. Lord Jesus, I pray and ask that in their situation, in their situation, in their circumstances, God, that you would show up big and you would be God and that you would reveal yourself, God, in a powerful, intimate, intimate, powerful, deep way. And Lord, we all join our hearts and voices and we pray, God, not that you would take them necessarily out of that situation or that you would deliver them tomorrow, but that in that situation, God, that they would come to know you more powerfully, they would come to utter more dependence on you in a greater way, and they would come to, Lord God, hearing the voice of God that reminds them, I am with you always, I am with you always, and sense your nearness, sense your presence. And that you would remind them, God, that somehow, somehow unbeknownst to us, that you will glorify yourself and your name and that you would bring about good in their lives. We lift them up unto you. And for those of us that are standing around near them, help us to be the church. Help us to be the church, the very body of Christ in prayer, in fellowship, in accountability, and in relationship. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We all stand together as we leave with this one last closing song of response. It's a reminder to us of who Christ is and what he has done that enables us. Children of God, loved by God, He is with you. He is for you. He comes to give His life in suffering, to end suffering, to create a world in which there will be no more suffering. Anytime you're tempted to ask God, do you care? Do you care? He says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. See how much I care. See how much I care. You have a mission, child of God, and it is to be Jesus wherever you are this week. Be that by speaking. Be that by serving. Be that by giving your life. Embrace inconvenience. Embrace unconditional love. Embrace costly sacrifice. Simply carry the cross for Jesus for Jesus. May the Lord go with you and be beside you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday as we continue our journey. Take care.